Good morning. Welcome to Solid Rock. We're happy to have you today. We're actually going to explore this story that Austin just read in more detail today. So we're going to be talking about Zacchaeus. Have you seen the film um, Stranger Than Fiction? Has everybody seen that? If you haven't, is it okay if I go ahead and commence with the spoilers? Is that okay? I'm, I'm joking. I'll try not to give away um, too much of the, the main plot. It is a great little comedy uh, or drama or even tragedy. I, I guess it's a little bit of all of that, starring Will Ferrell, whose character is named Harold Crick. Harold is an IRS auditor uh, who also happens to be, in the film, a, the subject of a novel that is being written, and he's hearing the narration of this novel as it is being written. So that's as much as I'll give away. I don't want to give the, the major plot twist away, although in my defense, you've had plenty of time to see it. It is 2019, so you've had over a decade to see it, but nonetheless... One of the subplots in this film involves the emergence of a love, a romantic relationship between Harold, the auditor, and one of his auditees, Anna, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, who owns and operates a small bakery. But the romance, as you could imagine, between the two is not immediate. There was a lot to overcome. There are a lot of obvious hurdles in that sort of a relationship. An auditor and an auditee are, in fact, an unlikely match. But in one of the most memorable, at least for me, one of the most memorable scenes of that nascent romantic relationship is one of the initial encounters the two have where Harold introduces himself and explains his auditing purposes to Anna, and she loses her mind. Do you remember that scene? She begins yelling, tax man, tax man, get out, and, which incites the entire bakery, all of the customers and other employees to begin booing and hissing and yelling tax man. And that's sort of what I picture taking place in this story. You, you sort of feel bad for Will Ferrell in, in that scene. I mean, that's a tough job, right? Nobody's happy to see you. It's not easy to make friends. I mean, that's the beginning of a lot of bad days when that guy shows up to your house. And I think Luke chapter 19 depicts something similar. We were just introduced to the main character, a man named Zacchaeus, the wee little man, right? The wee little man was he. I wanted to avoid referencing the song, but I don't know how you preach a sermon on this text without at least a nod to the classic children's song, especially since we have uh, some of our older kids in with us today. I'm not going to sing it, though, for you, so I'm sorry. Luke 19 is where we find ourselves, and by this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is well on his way to Jerusalem. He begins that journey toward his impending death in Jerusalem. He, he started the journey up in Capernaum in Galilee, which eventually leads him through the city of Jericho as he nears the holy city. Now, Jericho was an important city for the Roman Empire in the first century. It was one of the primary locations where Rome would collect tolls and taxes on goods as they were passing back and forth from east to west. 
Jericho was also quite a large city. Herod even had one of his grand palaces in that city. So it's no surprise, really, when Luke begins telling us a story that takes place in Jericho, it's no surprise that we would be quickly introduced to an individual involved in the empire's taxation industry in that region. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 1, we'll read it again. He entered Jericho, he being Jesus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So who is Zacchaeus? Later on in that story, we just read it a moment ago, we see that as Jesus engages with this man, people are pretty upset about it. Why would Jesus want to spend time with this Sinner. People don't care for Zacchaeus, and that's probably not strong enough language to describe their contempt. Hatred, distrust, disgust. I think those words are much more appropriate and accurate. And, and why is this man hated? Well, Luke tells us right here from the beginning, he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And I don't think it's so much that he was just rich, but it's how he acquired that wealth that led to this hatred. He became wealthy through his partnership with the empire, collecting taxes from his own people, from the people of Israel. So he was a symbol. In many ways, he was a traitor, a symbol of the authority of a foreign oppressive power in their midst. So if you think that Maggie Gyllenhaal's contempt for Will Ferrell is strong in Stranger Than Fiction, this was on a whole different level. Tax collectors in the first century were not quite like IRS agents in today's world. Rome levied incredibly high tax rates. They didn't offer things like deductions. They didn't offer tax breaks for folks in the lowest income brackets. It was heavy taxation for all in order to support the folks who were occupying your land. So your taxes, your hard-earned finances were going to pay for the people you didn't want to be there in the first place. And to be fair, there's a little bit of that involved in all of taxation, I guess, but with Rome, they would at times bid out these tax collection jobs to locals from those various regions. But what's important to understand is that there were no limits from Rome. There were no limits on the tax collectors to what they could do to bring in the necessary dollars. Rome would just say, look, we need this much money for this many people. How you get that, that's your business. What you do in order to, um, what, what you add to everybody's share for your personal gain, that, that's up to you. We don't care as long as we get what we need. So tax collectors in the, the first century Roman world were notorious for adding exorbitant amounts to the required taxes in order to enrich themselves. In fact, if you remember that story way back in Luke chapter 3, 
We're introduced to John the Baptist, the man who's preparing the way for Jesus. And he's out in the wilderness preaching a message of repentance. He's baptizing everybody that comes to him in the wilderness, including, Luke tells us, a group of tax collectors. And this is how their interaction goes. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. What shall we do? John the Baptist says, stop collecting more than you're supposed to. You're making yourself rich, and those you are stealing from are barely surviving. So this was the norm under Roman occupation, and I think it helps shed some light on the character in our story this morning. When we are told here at the beginning of Luke 19 that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, it almost goes without saying that he was rich. If he was good at his job at all, of course he was rich because he could exert pressure. He had influence and power to get what he needed from the people, not just for Rome, but so that he could pad his wallet a little bit, so that he could enrich himself and so that he could live in luxury. So Zacchaeus is in cahoots with the empire. He had betrayed his own people in order to profit a bit and build his personal financial portfolio and live in luxury. So with all of this background, at this point in the story, an audience hearing the name Zacchaeus, hearing what his occupation, was it's likely that they would feel the impulse to boo Zacchaeus. Tax man. Get him out of here. But, and this is an important but, and I think it's a good general rule for all of us to keep in mind, the people we like, the people we agree with about nearly everything are not entirely virtuous. Those that we disagree with on nearly every point, those that we can't stand, that we can't get along with, they aren't entirely villainous. They aren't devoid of all virtue. Zacchaeus was a bit more complex than the people wanted to believe, as we all are. Let's continue reading verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, has this desire. He's undoubtedly heard about this man and perhaps even grown sympathetic in response to things he had heard. He's intrigued by what this man was teaching and offering people, and he hears that Jesus is going to be passing through his city. This is the perfect opportunity. Now is his chance to witness firsthand what's going on with this man. But alas, as Luke tells us, on account of the crowd, he is unable to see. Because Luke says he was small, in stature. This is where we get that detail of the children's song, the wee little man. Now, this is not 
an issue that I have faced often in my life. In fact, in my experience, due to my height, I am the crowd in this scenario, obscuring the view of whoever's behind me. And that may sound like a blessing to you, but I assure you, in many ways, it is a curse. This is why. If I am at, let's say, for instance, a concert, it is difficult for me to enjoy what's taking place on the stage because I'm thinking about the poor soul behind me <laughs> and how much they hate me and listening for those curse words that they're uttering about me beneath their breath or maybe to my face. Nanette and I are going to a concert in two weeks, and I'm not joking. I've already thought we have seats that are pretty close to the stage, and I've already thought about that uncomfortable moment when I stand up for the first time, <laughs> and the person behind me realizes they will see nothing for the next two hours. It, it's really uncomfortable. But, but I think it's possible that there's something, potentially something more than just that potential height difference going on here that's responsible for Zacchaeus's inability to get a glimpse of Jesus. Because I, Zacchaeus is no stranger to confrontation, even potentially physical, violent confrontation. He's an enforcer of sorts. He can throw his weight around. He convinces people to give them all of, his mo all, all of their money. He has power and influence. Surely he can make his way through the crowd. It's not like somebody with my ripped muscular frame standing in front of somebody weak at a concert. I mean, I pretty much live at the gym. No, nobody's going to mess with me. I can make my way to the front. But if you're listening to the podcast, it, that's a joke. Everybody in the room can, can see that that's a joke, but just want to make that clear. His view is obscured both by his small stature and, Luke says, by the crowds. And so maybe there's something physical to it, but I, it's possible, at least, that there's also a social element to that obscured view of Jesus. Zacchaeus is hated. Nobody wants him around. The thought must be, well, you can't exploit us and then join in with us for the good stuff. Like seeing this popular teacher and miracle worker passing through our city. Get out of here. You, you have no business in this moment to spend time with us. You have nothing to do with this man. Don't, don't you have somebody to steal money from? Run along and do that. This is our moment. This is our teacher. So perhaps Zacchaeus is also being intentionally blocked by the crowds, blocked from encountering Jesus simply because they detest him. They, they can't imagine a scenario where these two would have anything in common. I want to come back to that in a moment, but despite these hurdles, Zacchaeus is undeterred. He is intent on seeing Jesus. So, as the story goes, he finds a sycamore tree, runs ahead, climbs up in the tree, gets a glimpse, and encounters Jesus. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, we might call this presumptuous on the part of Jesus, right? 
He doesn't wait for Zacchaeus to invite him to his home. He says, no, I'll go and go ahead and invite myself. I mean, we can admit that's a bit strange, right? That makes for an uncomfortable situation. Have you ever been there? Oh, you're making dinner tonight? Well, what time should I be over? If you haven't had an experience like that, let me know before you leave. I'd love to give you the opportunity. I'd love to invite myself over for a nice meal and intrude on whatever you have planned. Jesus doesn't wait. He takes the initiative immediately, engages Zacchaeus. And I think this signals something important in the story about the character of Jesus. And that is that Jesus is relentless in his pursuit of an individual that everybody else had written off, had blocked from seeing Jesus. Somebody despised by the people. And in many ways, rightfully so. They had a reason to be angry with Zacchaeus. He's an enemy of the people. He's one of our own who has partnered with our occupying enemy and is exploiting us. He's wringing every cent out of our pockets. This is the man. Jesus looks up in the tree. He says, hey, I see you. I see you, and I want to spend the day with you. Let's go to your house. Verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus is a bit more complex than most would want to believe. Verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus is the least likely, in in a different way than other folks, first century society, but least likely to win the attention and affection of this spiritual man, of this religious leader. The least likely to catch the eye of Jesus, but he is immediately seen and engaged. And I think this tells us something incredible about Jesus. I mean, the response of the crowd to all that has taken place, it tells the story. They're furious. They grumble, Luke says. They they can't believe it. I mean, we're the good religious folk. We, We expect this sort of interaction with Jesus. But instead, the one who is partnering with the oppressive regime, the one taking advantage of the people receives this invitation. Even Zacchaeus is not too far gone. Even Zacchaeus. I mean, he has some history. He's got issues. There's a past of sin. 
He has been a participant in unjust systems that are hurting and destroying people. And yet he too is a candidate for the extravagant love of God expressed in Jesus Christ. And he responds to the invitation, Luke says, with delight. He responds and receives him joyfully. Shows a commitment to change. So Jesus had somehow gotten a hold of this guy's heart in a radical way. He stands up and says, I, I will give half of what I have to the poor. If I have defrauded anybody, which if you're going to say that, it's likely indicating that you have. And what we know about tax collectors, he probably has defrauded some folk. If I have defrauded anybody, I'll re restore it fourfold. There is a radical transformation at the call of Jesus. And Jesus responds in saying, today salvation has come to his house. He too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. It is not the well who need a physician, it is the sick. The son of man came to save and save the lost, the, the religious lost, the non-religious lost, those who are victims of oppression, those who are participants in oppressive systems. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus. How do we know this? Well, because Jesus himself has visited his house. And when Jesus visits, salvation is close at hand. Amen. I want to begin closing by drawing our attention to a couple of additional ways to view this story. In addition to what this story tells us about God and Jesus Christ and what it tells us about salvation visiting us in the person of Jesus Christ, I think the story could also provide a helpful allegory through which we could think about how we relate to others as followers of the one who visits and bring salvation. So I want to view it through this allegorical lens, which I think is appropriate at times. Theologian Craig Bartholomew once commented on this story, suggesting that there's always this danger that we, as followers of Jesus, that we would become the crowds in this story. Infatuated with Jesus, but obscuring the view that others might have of Jesus. There's that danger that we would become, in an allegorical sense, the crowds in the story. And we, we can obscure the view that others would have of Jesus in, in a variety of ways. We can do that through our attitudes and how we think about who deserves to see Jesus, um, who we think is unworthy of seeing and encountering Jesus. We, we can obscure the view that others would have of Jesus in the way that we live, through our lifestyle. I mean, if, if, if we profess to follow Jesus, folks are making assumptions about Jesus as they observe how we live and how we interact with the world around us. And it's possible that we would send the wrong message about Jesus and obscure him in that way. Our approach to life is bigger than just us, but it's impacting Others, It's impacting the way others see Jesus, or if they can see Jesus 
at all. So in a conversation, when Bartholomew made that suggestion, N.T. Wright was a part of the conversation as well, and he suggested, in light of the danger of becoming like the crowd in this story, our duty is this. He said, it is our task to plant more sycamore trees. To plant more sycamore trees. Obviously not literally, although that might not be a bad thing to do as well. But we're living in a way that can prop folks up to be able to get a glimpse of Jesus. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You're the light of the world, not to attract attention to yourselves, not, not to become conceited in thinking that you make the call on who Jesus can visit. No, in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are the light in that we are pointing others to Jesus. Or in light of this story that we read in Luke 19, that we are propping others up so that they might get a glimpse of the one who visits and brings salvation. Our task is to plant more trees, as it were. To live in a way that doesn't obscure the view, but that makes it possible that others might see the one that, who has brought salvation into our lives, the one who seeks and saves the, saves the lost. So as Kevin comes up, I want to leave us with a couple of questions to be thinking about. We are going to conclude our time together by singing a song together, a period of worshiping through singing. And as we do that, I want you to be thinking about a couple of questions. First of all, are there folks that I would rather Jesus just pass by? Who would that be? Is there anybody that I detest or distrust so much that I would rather Jesus, Jesus just pass them by? Am I hoping for that? Or am I actively seeking to obscure their view? Or is it unintentional? Am I unintentionally obscuring the view others would have of Jesus through my attitudes, through my words, or through my actions? And then finally, this question, and I think this is an important question to consider. Can I rejoice that Jesus would visit Zacchaeus? Can I rejoice in that? Is there anybody in my life for whom I would not rejoice at a visit of Jesus? I think that would reveal something about our hearts. So I would encourage you to think about that. Maybe even a, a specific person would come to your mind. I would encourage you in the next few moments to repent And to seek to move forward in the grace of God. To ask God to plant a desire in your heart to see everybody visited by the Son of Man who seeks and saves the lost. Would you stand? We're going to sing a song together. Before we do, I want to pray this prayer for us.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the story that we've read. We thank you for the ways that it is revealing dark parts of our hearts. Even though that's uncomfortable, we, we ask that you would shine your light into our darkness. We pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us when we write folks off. Forgive us for attitudes that assume some aren't worthy of encountering you. Luke says, Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And in this moment, we recognize that that is us. So we ask that you'd save us from these harmful, unhealthy patterns of thought and attitudes towards others. Enable us to live into your love, your grace, your mercy. Give us grace, O oh Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Let's lift our voices in worship today.